0: Josh Riddell has been at Google for nearly seven years. He now serves as senior program manager on the core search team. Josh shares with us his background that led him to Google, as well as some of the hard earned lessons he's learned along the way. Enjoy. Welcome all. Max of the Accidental Engineer here. Today, I am extremely happy to introduce our guest, Josh Riddell. Welcome, Josh. Hi. Josh, uh, I'll introduce you a little bit. You're a program manager in search at Google. Uh, You've been there for nearly seven years, is that right? That's correct. And you've worked on a slew of products at Google. Do you mind sharing with people what you've been working on the last seven years?
1: Sure. So for six and a half of those years, I actually worked in uh, Trust and Safety, which is a team that handles abuse fighting on Google's products. Abuse comes in a whole bunch of different forms, um, and it happens on all of our products in one way or another. So I actually started out working on Google Wallet, or what was called Google Checkout at the time, uh, dealing with buyer fraud and then merchant fraud. So these are people who would either steal credit cards to use them to buy things for themselves, um, or to use them to simply churn through the credit card and and monetize it, um, or merchants that would try to steal people's money (laughs) more directly um, by sort of selling fake things. Uh, So that was Google Wallet. And then I ended up over time working on a product called Google Helpouts, uh, which only lasted a short year, uh, but was a way for uh, people to book video chat sessions with experts. So if your pipes are exploding, what do you do? Maybe you can call someone over video chat and have them look at it with you. Um, So I did that for a year. And then I ended up working on uh, a slew of free products. We would call them... uh, Accounts, content, and engagement products, things like Gmail, Drive, Blogger, Google+, um, anything that you can think of that's not ads or directly search, like organic search, uh, those are the products that my team has worked on, including all the stuff that you might see coming out now. My team probably worked on them a year beforehand. Um,
0: in case our audience didn't pick up on this, uh, I think it's a subtle distinction, but you are not in an engineering role at Google However, for audience that doesn't know uh, program management as a practice, uh, I think many, many of our guests on the show so far have not been in engineering roles, but for people who haven't heard of program management before, do you mind giving people uh, a guide to maybe the distinction between program management, project management, product management, and what it is that you're doing?
1: Sure, absolutely. So you can definitely go online and find pretty clear, well written distinctions between those three things, um, especially product and program management. So, a product manager, uh, and <laughs> forgive me if any of the product managers previously on your show disagree, but in my experience, a product manager uh, is someone who sets the vision um, and scope for a product, often comes up with the designs for the product alongside the engineers, um, and is the one who makes a lot of the executive calls on the strategic direction of the product. Um, So they may face challenges that are uh, much more specific to getting the product off the ground, uh, making sure it launches, understanding growth and number of users, um, and... Uh, finding out what's really in scope and out of scope, right? Making those hard decisions. Um, Now, interestingly, a program manager can do all of those things and sometimes does. Often we find that product and program managers take on each other's roles when the other isn't present. Uh, But a program manager uh, more often runs a set of what we would call programs, which are simply collections of projects that could range across not just one product, but many. Um, It could be a single product. Uh, But the idea is really to act as the way I describe it in, in, in two specific ways. One is as a lighthouse. So as you see uh, different engineers working together and the product manager inter- you know, working with the VP and things like that, and with their own engineers, you see issues. You see issues in the relationships that are being built. Um, you see issues in the designs that are being put forth. And usually those issues are around people not knowing what someone else is doing or what someone else intends or means. And then there's another option, which is people not knowing what someone else feels, right? So as a program mm-hmm. manager, often what You're doing is you're saying, okay, I see these two people talking about something that they think are completely unrelated, these two things that are completely unrelated, when in fact I know they're related from having spoken to everyone else on the team and everyone else involved in the product. And so I'm going to raise this flag and let everyone know that these two people should be working together. And I may even set up that kind of an arrangement to ensure that we cover all of our bases, right? So that's one, making sure people don't crash into each other and making sure people, you know, land smoothly, right?
0: so yeah. one one thing that I think might be helpful for our audience and for me, too, would be to get an impression of, as a program manager, who are the types of job titles that you interact with uh, in helping them uh, program manage, like you're describing? I think it might be helpful to know, like you described in relation to product manager, who it is specifically on a team that you might interact with.
1: Absolutely. So it can vary pretty widely depending upon the organization you're in. So for example, for the first six and a half years, I was in an operations organization, which meant that the people that I interacted with were often uh, data analysts Operations managers, so people who would take, say, large groups of vendors and have them do single tasks, engineers that built tools that the operations teams used to do their jobs, as well as executive leadership, sort of convincing and presenting on issues at hand and sort of raising flags and escalating as necessary. On the the more sort of technical side, now that I've left operations and worked towards more of an engineering role, a technical role, um, I work daily with software engineers. Uh, but it could be even easily um, site reliability engineers, uh, and often there's a team lead, manager, or a team lead that I'll work with more closely, as well as, like I mentioned, the PM, and also any um, executive leadership at the director level or higher that needs to understand sort of where we are on a project um, and what might, you know, what the risks are, um, and what we're going gotcha. to do to mitigate them. Yeah. So it's really, really the gamut, frankly.
0: Um, so I, we haven't mentioned it yet, but. Seven years ago, before Google, you worked in management consulting. And I was wondering if you mind sharing for our audience, maybe what was the crossover like? Uh, Coming out of college, did you go straight into management consulting? And what was your path to Google there?
1: So actually, I didn't work in management consulting. it's interesting. I was intending to work in management consulting, and I actually ran the consulting club in college, um, as you might remember our minimal membership. (laughs) But uh, I intended to go into management consulting, and then I actually got very sick um, in a bunch of different ways at once, Uh, most notably with type 1 diabetes, which I could also talk about forever, but probably not (laughs) the topic of this conversation. Um, Anyway, what ended up happening was I realized I wasn't prepared for what um, management consulting interviews entail, which is often what's called a case study interview. So I had prepared a little bit for them, but I didn't consider myself ready enough to take on the big firms, people that wanted to interview me. So I canceled my interviews and I actually went more directly into the field that I majored in in college, which was economics. So I went into economic consulting, which is quite a different world than management consulting. Um, did you want to say something? Sorry.
0: Oh, no, I, I just want to Reminisce that I remember coming to visit you in downtown San Francisco and and visiting you at your offices shortly before you joined Google. And uh, for audience that can't visualize it, uh, I remember meeting some of your coworkers. And generally, economic consulting firms seem to recruit uh, a lot from a pr- pretty recent graduates. Yeah. Uh, so, what was I skills wise? I re- recall you describing. Having some crossover from the skills you learned in college, like learning Stata for statistical analysis, and I think using that in your your job as an economic consultant. Uh, but was there any crossover from uh, economic consulting into your joining Google?
1: Yes, but not in the way I would have expected. Um, the most important crossover was actually also the source of a lot of the trauma that I experienced in economic consulting, um, which was the attention to detail. Um, at you know tech companies, especially large tech companies like Google, often um, precision is eschewed in favor of growth. Uh, and when you're in economic consulting, specifically, uh, uh, my firm especially dealt a lot with cases, right? Basically, you work as a researcher for um, uh, you know, a PhD economist who acts as an expert witness. So your bosses are all lawyers, which means you can't make a single mistake. In fact, everything that we did in our, in our firm uh, was done twice by two different people blindly. And then we had to write ways either in Stata or Excel to compare our results, Um, to make sure our analyses were correct before we sent them out. Because if you get one number wrong, you could lose an entire multi-billion dollar case. So that's pretty stressful. But what it also meant was that I learned very specific ways of communicating. So for example, how you write an email. It sounds so silly and weird, especially for people who are very technical, but email writing is something that people have to do all the time. And often they're not very good at it. And it can lead to large miscommunications between groups. Um, And so... For example, even something as simple as separating the question in your email from the body um, to make it very easy for people to know what it is that you actually want from them. Sounds very straightforward, and maybe a lot of people know that. Um, I was actually taught to always put it at the bottom of an email, put your question at the bottom. That way people will skim what you wrote but still notice the question. Right? Those little things can really change the answers that you get. Um, other things I learned were um, around Excel or spreadsheets. Uh, and that sounds, again, like this very non-technical sort of easy-to-learn thing. But it's amazing how much faster you can work in very scrappy environments if you've been <laughs> brutalized into memorizing as many keyboard shortcuts as possible um, in, in a spreadsheet. Um, how much faster mm-hmm. you can go and, and how well you can track your work with engineers and how well engineers can track their own work, too.
0: I th- one common uh, f- piece of feedback I've gotten from our audience is... That people have a pretty rational, uh, I'd say, obsession with tooling, mm-hmm. and so I'm I'm interested to hear more about your use of Excel and uh, the crossover from joining Google. Uh, do you guys use Google Sheets now? Yeah, yeah. Is that primarily what you use? Yeah, yeah, yeah. we don't use. Excel. <laughs> uh, what are what are some of the um, what are some of the pros and cons and trade offs that you encountered, or you've encountered? Uh, crossing over from Excel to Google Sheets. Uh, and it's, Google Sheets, as I know, as we all know, has come a long way in terms of feature development over the last seven years that you've been at Google. Uh, but what were, what were some of the pros and cons that you've uh, encountered switching from Excel to Google Sheets? Sure.
1: So yeah, it has changed a lot. Actually, when the newest version of Google Sheets came out a few years ago, um, not that anyone else would know, but I know what it was. <laughs> I actually <laughs> broke it on day one. So so, uh, one of the major things that I encountered that was a difference, which to be frank, I don't think is nearly as big a difference anymore, is the size of a sheet that you can use Um, in Excel because it's all local data, although of course now there's cloud-based storage. Um, you could have millions of rows in a spreadsheet just copied straight from a database. Like I could write state queries or SQL queries and just dump them into Excel and start anal- reanalyzing them or looking into them in more depth in an easy manner. Um, with Sheets, if you try to put in millions of rows, even if it said it could support it, you break the whole, I mean, you break Chrome, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and that would be true even with 10,000 rows. Um, now mm-hmm. it goes a little slow at 10,000 rows, but it's not nearly as, as breaky. And what I found really is that you shouldn't be using spreadsheets for that kind of work, right? Really, when you get more sophisticated um, and you get better at data analysis, if you're going to be using large swaths of data, as I'm sure all the tech people know, um, technical people know, you know you're going to use real database analysis systems even for little investigative work. Um, so really, you should be using sheets for smaller um, either presentational, back of the envelope calculation, or tracking of say bugs or um, or tasks or things like that. Um, and Google Sheets is frankly perfect for that. Um, the way that you can have the, you know the number of different people working on it at once and just all the new features that they launched, I I haven't thought of a single Excel function now that um, I can't use in Google Sheets by this point. Um, And in fact, Google Sheets has expanded beyond that because you can update, you know, they can update whatever they want instead of having to wait for the new version of Excel. So that's pretty wonderful. Have
0: you found a need to learn SQL and move beyond Sheets in your
1: role in program management? Yeah, yeah. Sorry for cutting you off. Actually, no, no, no. When no. I started at Google, I was a data analyst. So in economic consulting, I basically just analyze data um, a lot and then try to interpret what it might mean um, and look through a lot of messy data sets from companies. Um, and when I started, that's what I was kind of doing: was writing SQL or internal forms of SQL queries um, on our massive databases to find trends in abuse. Um, that was usually people who would be, uh, you know, stealing credit cards or money or things like that. Um, So I definitely found it useful in actually moving into a program management role. It's really good to have some sort of database knowledge or or query knowledge, because what often will happen is someone will say, hey, uh, how are we doing on X or um, how many Y have happened? And that's not something you would have had in a spreadsheet, right? Spreadsheets are more... um, reactionary. They're not prepared. And there's probably a database somewhere that has the information that person asked for. And if you can write a simple query or maybe even copy other people's more complex queries that are already on those tables or databases... Um, you'll be far, far ahead of where the other people in your role would be, uh, not knowing the answer and having to get someone else to do it for them. I'm not saying you should always be doing data analysis as a program manager. In fact, it can be sort of a rabbit hole that you fall into that you don't want to get stuck in. Uh, But generally, it's good to have it as a sort of quick, here's the number kind of skill set.
0: So before we hopped on the recording, you described your career path as very risky and narrow and I think this might be the most relatable portion of our conversation, so I'm bummed that we're getting to it uh, at this point. But what is it about your career path so far that's been risky and narrow? Uh,
1: well, let's see. Uh, I had, I had <laughs> no idea what I wanted to do after high school, which most people are like. Um, and the only classes that they didn't really teach much at all in high school, uh, or one of the only ones, was economics. Um, And so I said, I'll just go to the economics college and hopefully that'll be the right choice. Right. I had no idea whether I'd like it. I had no idea whether I'd be good at it. Right. Um, And I actually had to work my ass off really hard to be those things in economics in college. Um, And when you're an econ major, there are actually not that many career opportunities for you unless you want to go into a PhD program, which are extraordinarily brutal and competitive. Um, 90-hour weeks, very unlikely you'll do well. I actually spoke to Stephen Levitt, who came to visit uh, our college a while back. Um, directly.
0: Co-author of Freakonomics. Author of
1: Freakonomics. That's, yeah, exactly. Um, and he said, you know, to all the kids, even the ones who were stellar and going to go to grad school, don't go. It's not worth it. Okay, then what do you do, right? Um, <laughs> well, you, I guess you go into management consulting. Okay, sure. Um, well, that's great if you're prepared. Um, but With some of the horror stories I've had of the times I did still interview with case study questions, not having prepared, I can tell you, you need to be very prepared. And the path is extremely competitive. People still do well there, but that's not the way that I went, right? I ended up uh, applying for only two jobs out of college. One was Nira Economic Consulting, where I ended up going um, because they didn't have case study questions and because they used Stata and I was an econ major. So pretty narrow. They wanted economists. Um, And the other was assistant manager at Walgreens. Those are my two interviews mm-hmm. for out of college. So mm-hmm. um, it was a pretty, like I said, pretty narrow in that there were, I wasn't, you know, there was no B school, right? There or there was no, uh, sorry, not B school. There was no second level, you know, there was Walgreens, <laughs> and there was this, there's B school, is something else. But, the, you know, there weren't, there weren't a lot of, um, you know, options available then. Um, and even then, once I got into it, it was a really harrowing experience because of that stress around being perfect all the time. And the people who had been there for more than a year or two um, were just kind of burned out as people and had lost a lot of their sort of um, their ability to support others. And it was a very competitive, sort of argumentative, intense, angry environment. Um, I slept in the fire escape, like for naps a lot. Um, I mean, it was just, you work like crazy hours and you don't get paid nearly as much as you do in tech. Um, And there, you know, everything has to be perfect, right? Whereas in tech, you can make mistakes all the time, right? Um, And I happened to have a friend who had, uh, who worked at YouTube, who happened to get me a referral, which now you can't even do because you have to have worked with someone before to refer them. Uh, Google's pretty strict about it now, but at the time he was just like, he's my friend. He's cool. Go check him out. Right. So uh, I interviewed (laughs) and I got all the way to the onsite and I didn't get in. I didn't get it. Um, and, uh, you know, one thing that Google is good at is pushing pushing their recruiters really hard because the recruiters are not full-time employees usually. They're often contracted and they need to prove themselves to become full-time employees. And so to do that, they go through all these old files of people who were good for Google but not good for the role. And I just so happened to be one of those people. So they called me, you know, three months later out of the blue and said, Hey, there's this other role in abuse fighting you might be interested in. I said, Oh yeah, sure. I was desperate to leave by that point. And I had a friend who happened to work as the lead, uh, they're like Google guru at his company for how to use ads, right? How How to monetize their products and use ad campaigns. So I met with him and I said, how do you abuse the system? And he said, oh, we do it every day. In fact, everyone we know does it every day. Here's how you abuse all of Google's ads network. It's super easy, let me show you right? So when I interviewed (laughs) and the person said, what are some ways that you might abuse Google's ad network, right? The answer was, let me just go to this doc I have in front of me of all the ways it's currently abused that you probably don't even know and I'll recite it to you, right? Um, So these are, you know, a lot of it has to do with, you know, who you know and what sort of expertise they have. Now, um, if you don't happen to know these kinds of people already, there are ways to find them, right? You can proactively go out and interview folks, uh, who work in companies that you think have ad networks, which is all of them, right, online. Um, and I'm sure you can find someone in your network who maybe knows a person who knows a person who has to work with Google Ads, right? But this was, again, a pretty specific use case of how do you abuse the system? And it just so happened that I knew someone who was very good at it. Um, so, uh, so then, you know, onsite interviews at the time were also very different in that Google was known for these b- excruciating interviews around unrelated information, uh, to the actual job. Uh, they, they've changed that a lot. So people are doing much, are, are much better now suited to the roles that they're interviewed for. But at the time I was asked questions like you have 50 red marbles and 50 blue marbles and two jars. And how do you maximize the chance of picking rights? Like who cares? Right. That, oh, that sort of thing was yeah. irrelevant. Um, sorry. What were you going to say?
0: Oh, no, I, I, this is all super interesting information to hear. Uh, how, How have the interviews changed? You alluded to them being more skill-specific or role-specific. Yes.
1: So actually, um, I ended up uh, between the role of fighting abuse on Google's uh, paid products, um, which were all getting deprecated, which means uh, sort of shut down at the time. Google Wallet is back now in in a different form, but the form that I was working on was getting shut down. I had to find a new role to work on so that I I would still have work to do during the day and not get fired and stuff. Um, And it just so happened that (laughs) that the person who was running the headcount management for our entire org uh, was stepping down. And so I took on the role. Turns out spreadsheets are really handy when nobody knows how to track something, even as simple as headcount, which we didn't at the time. Um, headcount meaning the um, availability to hire, right? How many people each manager can hire and into what roles and who's coming in, who's going out, where there are their opportunities, things like that. So I tracked that for our 800 person organization. And that also meant I got to sit in on hiring committee meetings. And that also meant I got to speak to the recruiters who ended up writing a lot of interview questions. And in fact, one in particular, wasn't a recruiter, but he was running a program to change the way we did interviews. And I worked with him to gather an entirely new set of interview questions that we created a database for um, specifically to change the culture around fairness of interviews. Right? So instead of asking, you know, you have a building with two elevators, one only goes to the top half, one only goes to the bottom half of the building. There are engineers that work in the middle, all this craziness. We say, okay, what do you do during the day, manager? What do your people do during the day? Great. Why don't we ask them questions about things that they might need to figure out during the day at their job? Right. And it sounds so simple and straightforward, but you know, even today, a lot of especially small tech companies ask a lot of questions around fit probability and just general cognitive ability. And general cognitive ability is one of the four sort of facets of a Google interview, but it's not everything. And even that should be more related to the role that you're describing, right? Saying for so a good interview question for example, I got. That I think should still be asked today is you have a credit card purchase that was on a credit card that is from Australia using, let's say, an IP address that's in China um, for a product that's in the U.S. What are all of the different ways that the system could be abused right now in that situation, right? Um, and that's something mm-hmm. that like, you may not have any prior knowledge. You could have done a little bit of research and you can really think hard and critically about what might there be, right? What ways do people interact with each other and what ways the systems work together? That is still general cognitive ability. It's not really role related knowledge as much. Um, so that's mm-hmm. the, those are the kinds of questions that we switched over to things that are directly related to the role and what they'd be doing day to day.
0: So in program management, uh, I'm not sure how large a portion of our audience are specifically interested in roles in program management, but it would be interesting to hear maybe hints of what types of questions are asked in a program manager type of job interview. I realize your role now, you'd been at Google for six years, so it was a intra-Google move for you, so the interview process might have been different. But as somebody who likely interviews candidates for the program management team, can you give people a sense of what the interview process looks like and what skills you guys are testing for?
1: Yeah. Yeah, I'll try. Um, so <clears throat> I did have an intra-Google interview. I also had an interview to get onto the program management ladder. So at Google, there are job ladders um, that you know, specifically lay out what people in your role need to be doing sort of across the company for a lot of roles. Uh, and program management is one of those, such that you can go to any team at Google and say, I'm a program manager, and they'll say, great, we need you here, right? Right. Um, And so in those interviews, it really was similar to, I think, what would be asked of someone outside. Um, I've been asked questions around things like, okay, there's a vendor team, there's a team of people, um, you know, we've hired from an external company, they're doing a repetitive task in another country. Um, How do you know that they're doing the task that you've outlined for them? Because often what will happen is you have a very clear workflow in your mind, and you've built that workflow. So this is sort of the more operational program management side. Um, You've built a workflow, and uh, you ship it out, and everyone seems to be doing it, and there are no bad metrics, so everything's fine, right? And two years later, it all falls apart, and no one knows why. And the reason is that you didn't try to figure out what are people actually doing day to day. So there could be answers around things like going to visit them, sitting next to them, asking their managers, talking to them directly in one-on-one conversations if it's legal (laughs) Um, uh, or with their managers present if it's not, Um, and uh, finding ways to record sessions that maybe the company can record sessions and play them back. Uh, Looking at the quality metrics, not only of their work by their own quality reviewers, but... Uh, the metrics of the quality reviewers themselves, or even doubling, you know, your lookovers of the stuff that other quality people have done, right? So there's this whole path you can go down um, regarding operational sort of how do you optimize the team kind of stuff. Um, and then there, yeah, go ahead. So,
0: so I realize these, you're describing the skills that, or the actions you need to take to be successful as a program manager once you have the job. But I think for a large portion of our audience that might be interested in program management jobs but don't have one yet, um, I'm, I'll ask on their behalf uh, and feel free to say, this is proprietary information, can't talk about specific job interview questions for program management, but what is it exactly that you guys do to test for candidates being successful in the future at the types of actions you need them to do, like you've been describing.
1: So, just to be clear, that kind of question is one that you might face straight off the bat in a Google interview. Okay. Um, so, just gotcha. because I have experience doing it and can give a comprehensive answer, does not mean that um, it's not representative. Uh, there are there are other kinds of things too, though. Um, how do you how do you run a project? Even something as simple and broad as that, knowing how to answer that question in a short amount of time, walking through sort of what major steps you take. Um, There are other questions like, let's say a product is launching and it needs to happen and there are way too many moving pieces. So the, the interview question might be something around, you know, there are... X engineers and Y bugs and Z number of people who care and, you know, a days until launch and all this stuff. How do you, how would you handle that, that product launch? And the answer is not necessarily 45 minutes, like a case study for consulting. It would be more around how do you handle scope? How do you handle cost? How do you handle quality? How do you handle um, uh, customer relations or even um, HR within the team Uh, and, within the product? Um, how do you handle, um, let's see, risk? Uh, wh- what do you do with uh, critical paths as in the timeline? How do you create a timeline and how do you stick to it or find ways to adjust it as necessary? Uh, what different methods do you use to Uh, quickly change a project when it's not going the way that it should? How do you make that executive call or at least provide the right recommendation? Um, When you go to someone with a problem, do you come with an answer in hand or at least a suggestion in hand? Or do you just come to them with the problem, right? What sides of the problem Mm -hmm. do you analyze? Um, A lot of, uh, a really good resource (coughs) for this, although people mock it terribly, um, is the PMP exam and program. Uh, the project management professional program. It's by a a single company called PMI. So they have kind of a monopoly and there's definitely some weirdness around it, but there's a book that people could buy. Um, It's called Rita's. I'm trying to remember. It starts, it's her name is Rita, like Rita Mulhenny or something like that. And she helps you prepare for the PMP exam. Um, I actually have it here. Yeah. Rita Mulcahy's PMP exam prep. You don't need to read the book itself. Uh, the the underlying uh, PMP book. You can read just her book and it will walk you through so much of how to run a project from initiation, to planning, to execution, to monitoring, controlling, to closing, every step of the way, what you might want to do in a project. Now, one of the things about Google specifically that I think is useful for people to know is that we're not a typical company when it comes to project management. Um, often project managers in say a company like Procter and Gamble, right PNG, a big company, they have a lot of power. A project manager will come in and say, you, engineer, and you, engineer, you do this, and you, other person, manager, you manage these people this way. And this is the date that we've chosen, right? It's very almost product manager-like, but they, they have a lot of people, and they have them reporting to them. At Google, very few program managers have reports. And even when they do, it's mostly a sort of where do we put people question and how do you manage people well question, not a how do you run a project by assigning your reports you know, to specific tasks the way that people do in other Um, other companies. The major tenet of a Google program manager is influence without authority. You have no authority. You have to work solely with um, your wits and uh, data and the ability to convince people that what you want them to do is the thing they should be doing. I'm actually facing that right now with a project where there's a specific way that I want them to track the project, but I can't just tell them to do it. They simply won't. Like It just won't happen. Even if I got a mandate from their VP, it wouldn't happen. Um, So the way I need to deal with this is influence both their VP and them to agree that it is the best way to track a project for this use case, and then move on from there. So a question that you'll probably receive has to do with how do you influence people without authority, right?
0: So in case our audience uh, hasn't picked up on it, I get the impression that this type of a role requires a fair amount of on-the-job experience, like, probably five years in the workforce to be effective at doing what you're describing doing yourself. So I'm wondering, are there any entry level roles that people coming out of college can apply for in program management or is program management within Google or elsewhere something that people come to maybe out of an MBA program or like yourself, um, intra Google transfer or uh, you know, five plus years in the workforce, What what's kind of the profile and levels of experience that people can have as a background and consider being uh, competitive for getting sure. a role sure. in program management? Uh, so I
1: think you can get a role in program management out of college. It's definitely harder, but it is doable. I mean, directly out of undergrad. It's definitely easier if you have a business degree, I'm sure. Um, but, you know, really program management is just about knowing how to solve relationships and problems um, and I don't think that's something that you need to have a lot of industry experience to be able to do you may simply you know have a, a high EQ or um, a strong sense of what is the most efficient path to get something done um, or how to have a sense of authority even when you don't have any right these are all things that you can have straight out of the bat um, sure it's easier if you were in another role, in Google or in another tech company um, where you perform something similar, a lot of people actually transfer into program management from an unrelated role, like data analysis, like engineering even. Um, and part of the reason is that they realize that what they were doing is something that they're okay at, but the but the underlying skill set they provide is an obsession with um, efficiency and working relationships and successful follow-through. And that's something that you can prove even at the undergraduate level um, if you you know, narrate it in the right fashion. And narrating things in the right fashion is also one of the major skill sets, right? So I really don't think that anything I had um, that I learned at Google before becoming a program manager was something that Helped me be a better program manager. Other than learning how Google works as a company, which frankly you can't know until you get there, and Google doesn't really expect you to be able to fully understand. Um, they want you to be a good fit for it, but you know they, you'll learn that kind of stuff on the job. So I, I think you can come into it for sure.
0: Yeah. Okay. I the last thing I'd love to cover, and I I regret uh, bringing this up last, is how. Your personal health has affected your career and your career decisions. Um, do you mind giving our audience kind of a backstory of uh, the per- personal health issues that you've battled in uh, succeeding in your yeah, career sure. so far?
1: So I have a number of autoimmune illnesses now. Um, when I was a junior in college or before junior year, I was I went to Australia for an internship in kind of like management consulting, it's human capital consulting, but it's similar to management consulting in a lot of ways. Um, And I had a number of weird symptoms on my way there. And when I got there, uh, after the first two days uh, at my new job that I was so excited about, I ended up handing my credit card to the front desk at the emergency room and passing out on the floor in front of them. Um, And it turned out that my blood sugar was freakishly high. Uh, And that was because my pancreas stopped producing insulin and I was now a type one diabetic. And I didn't even know that that was the case. And they didn't know I didn't already have it when I got there. (laughs) So it was quite a shock to everyone on both sides. Um, It was, it was pretty traumatic. Yeah. And especially being away from home for, for uh, a whole summer, not knowing how to handle this kind of illness and stuff. Um, I think one of the ways it affected me was that um, in Australia, actually, there's a pretty huge social healthcare network, especially in Melbourne uh and when i got back to the u.s that all disappeared and so i'd sort of assumed that there would be you know people the government would just give you a dietician right to help you eat properly and a therapist to help you cope properly and you know uh, a number of endocrinologists right and all this stuff and the answer is no they don't you really have to do it on your own um and even then often the Mm. best expert you have is wrong um so i had symptoms even after i got back that seemed just like really hard diabetes but i was sleeping through classes. I was getting really depressed. I had, I gained weight in all these weird ways. Like my cheeks were really big, but my body wasn't that much bigger and all this weird stuff. And it was really, it was like suicidal depression. It was really intense. Um, and you know, people mm-hmm. just kept telling me, yeah, diabetes is a pretty big shock to your system. Uh, it's like, yeah, it seems different. Why am I so tired all the time? Um, it
0: was, you were, you were underdiagnosed yeah, a lot. like that. You- Yeah, it Um, it happens a lot. And
1: I, I, again, this narrow path, right? I happened to have a family member who happened to know the CEO of Blue Cross, um, and got me an appointment with uh, a much better expert at a teaching (laughs) hospital, who was like, "Wait, you also have hypothyroidism, right?" So there's a lot of times when people get sick that they don't realize they have other things too. It just seems like it's all part and parcel. And I've realized, especially for me, but maybe others out there as well, that that's just not how it works. Often there are these co-illnesses that people don't think to test for, or even if they do, uh, they test for them right away. But it turns out, you know, a few weeks later is when the second one hits you, things like that. Um, And that took a huge chunk out of my time. Um, It took a huge chunk out of my energy level and out of my just drive to do well, because it suddenly felt like my life was going from being sort of. Managed towards my job to being managed towards my survival every minute of every day, which is what diabetes is like, um, mm-hmm. and uh, mm-hmm. that combined with you know a number of the other you know things I have makes it a constant concern. Um, and one of the things that I've found is most important is you know there are times in work where you're going to push yourself until you get sick. It, it happens. It happens in tech all the time. Um, but when I get sick, I don't get better for a long time because I have this autoimmune problem. Right. So. I've learned a few things. Uh, One is uh, sustainable working pace. Even if you have this thing that's due Friday and it's Thursday, maybe you pull an all-nighter, but you better plan for Friday afternoon to just leave work and go sleep, right? You can't just say, well, that was an all-nighter. I guess that happened and go back to work like it was normal, right? You really have to prepare for this. Um, And the other thing is, you you can take preventative stuff. I have a few things that I take that are um sort of, as soon as you start to cough, you can take some things that'll help you keep from getting ill, but really mm-hmm. um, balancing out your energy usage and getting enough sleep in the aggregate is really important, even for people who are healthy
0: mm-hmm. yeah. Oh, yeah, I was gonna mention as an aside that the things you're mentioning have total crossover to or can be applied to everybody, whether with an autoimmune disease or not with type one diabetes or not like sl- sleep is such a essential uh, yeah. steroid basically <laughs> for your day-to-day uh, performance and mental health. Yeah, and yeah. Well, what, health, what, um, so.
1: what I also found is um, it's not just that people are underdiagnosed, but it's this, it's this co-assignment of symptoms that are really important to look out for when you're not feeling well, <clears throat> because, you know, I had hypothyroidism. I got to my job at Nira. And I ended up with hyperthyroidism. I didn't know why I was so hyper and anxious and, you know, just jittery, physically jittery all the time. And I just, again, figured it must be the hypothyroidism. And it turned out I had this very rare form of of thyroid condition where your thyroid just goes into overdrive or underdrive, all the, you know, one way or the other. Every day, you don't know which it's going to be. And so this nuance Mm -hmm. in symptoms and really talking to your doctor about, about what you're experiencing in the moment and being specific and taking, you know, um, care over time to notice your symptoms as they change and intensify is really valuable in diagnosing um, what you have and getting back on track in your working life as well, um, because it can deeply affect Mm -hmm. how you do your job if you don't take care of it.
0: Yeah, I I think this is a great opportunity. I think a lot of our audience probably doesn't get uh, a reminder to check on their health very (laughs) frequently. (laughs) and this, this might this might be a good opportunity to just tell our audience if you have any outstanding you know health issues that you think are deviating from normal go go consult a medical practitioner and get a get a consultation get a a checkup cuz i mean i i can uh relate to this story of yours Josh of being abroad over the summer in in australia and that being the place and the time where you discover that you have super serious, uh, super serious health concerns that uh, are going to be recurring and permanent. Uh, so, I, for one, I want to say thanks for sharing this story. Uh, for another, I wanted to ask you real quick while we still have a little bit of time about how uh, you've mentioned a little of handling. Uh, your self treatment or treatments around your working career, uh, but are are there any anecdotes you can share for our audience about how uh, coping with uh, the health crisis that you've personally dealt with uh, manifests around your workday, like you've described in terms of sleep management and preventative uh, either activities or medicines yeah, you can take, yeah, sure. but maybe
1: maybe an anecdote Uh, yeah yeah, I think so Um, so how does it how does it manifest at work Um, yeah well I can you know, no, it's, fine. it's fine. It's fine. I'm thinking you, of something that's like. been happening recently where um, I've been tired lately. Uh, <laughs> first, I was tired because I had stopped <laughs> taking enough care of myself and I wasn't working out or sleeping well. Um, and it, you know, it was compounding and it made, meant that I was tired at times when I shouldn't be, right? Um, and it meant that I I was taking, I just felt like I needed to take a nap. Um, and there are times when you feel like you need to take a nap and you, you realize you just need to push through. And there are times when you really need to take a freaking nap, right? Um, and I found... Uh, I found that there are lots of empty conference rooms at Google um, and people don't really care when you do your work, right? As long as you do it. Um, So one of the things I've been getting really into is 25 minute timer nap. Even if you don't nap, just rest. Um, And the way I do it is there's there's something called an... Uh, an ostrich light An ostrich is this really funny looking head device that puts your whole head and your hands into this big sort of beanbag and uh, sort of sensory deprivates you. That's pretty (laughs) silly looking, but there's a light version of it that just goes around your eyes and and sort of around your whole head and acts as both a pillow and a light blocker um, and a sound dampener. Um, And you can wear headphones under it. Uh, and I literally just take it with me around campus, sometimes at Google and just be like, all right, what room's free for half an hour? This room. Great. Turn off lights, put the thing. I don't even need to turn off the lights. Just put the thing on my face, put in some headphones or just play some music right next to me. Um, and, and take a 25 minute rest. Again, you don't need to sleep, but that act of resting will often put you to sleep. And even if it doesn't, It's amazing how rejuvenated you can feel after that very short period of time. I'm not talking about like turn polyphasic. I'm just talking about take a 25-minute rest um, during the day sometimes, and it will really change how much work you get done and how good you feel um, and how much you realize you need to get sleep that night too.
0: (laughs) Totally. And for our audience that might not be picking up on this, what do you do with your phone during that Uh, window of time? Great question
1: so it depends on uh what's going on at the time there are times when i leave my phone on full blast because i'm waiting for a response from someone and i just cannot keep my eyes open but usually i'll put it on do not disturb look 30 minutes 25 minutes out of your day Nothing is going to change as much as you think it will. And that thing that you thought, one of the biggest, most most valuable lessons I learned at Google um, is, and this is something that even, I, I think there's a good quote from Jimmy Carter about this, but if you let a problem go, or you let your worry go about something that you think could explode, and you let it, often it will take care of itself. And that happens a lot when someone writes you a ping, right, you know, an instant message, and you don't answer it they find another way to deal with the problem and it almost always works out well. You do it yourself and you don't even think (laughs) about it. And you assume that other people will never be able to solve their problems. You're the only one who knows how to solve problems when someone doesn't answer you on instant messenger or over an email, but you're not. Everyone knows how to get around this kind of stuff. And if they don't, you'll get back to them in 25 minutes and it'll still be fine. Very little needs to happen that quickly. Even presentation related, even travel related, even time zone related, it's amazing how much time you actually have to get things done. If you just let it go for 25 minutes, it's a good reminder too.
0: I agree. This is a awesome takeaway. (laughs) I think, I think people would benefit a lot from getting reminded about that. Uh, This kind of has parallels to uh, uh, the four hour Mm. work week book reminds me of this. Uh, But I think one of the other realities that um, people would benefit from Getting reminded of is that uh, <laughs> a lot of people in wanting to ask for raises, maybe for example, underestimate how uh, just how important they are to an organization, or overestimate just how important they are to an organization. And uh, you think to yourself when getting pings, uh, you know, via instant message or from your coworkers in whatever form, uh, that you need to be there to answer it, but. The reality is the world. The world is pretty resilient, and uh, uh, one of the ways to gauge whether you're doing a good job is whether the business is resilient without you being able to
1: answer an email right. in under five right. minutes, <laughs> right? Yeah, like, absolutely. Uh, but of
0: course, it depends <laughs> yeah, on what. you I mean, doing. I suppose, yeah, if
1: you're on call, <laughs> you know, that's maybe a little different. Um, uh, that day, but uh, yeah. but but what what it what it helps also is then being able to be very strategic about when you do spend that extra time or or spend that less time um, to answer that email within five minutes, right? Um, you know, you do decide, okay, mm-hmm. for this person I'm going to do it because I need them to see me as someone who's on top of stuff all the time. If you do that with everyone, you will look exhausted and stressed out. You will start to act exhausted and stressed out, and then you'll start making mistakes and trying to respond to everyone quickly when you could have not responded, let some problems resolve themselves, and then make big impact in certain pre-designated scenarios that you get to choose, right? Um, One of the ways that my old manager put it is every email you get is someone else putting an item on your task list. You don't want to let them do that. Mm -hmm. So don't let them run your life. They can email you, but you're the one who decides what your task list is, not them, right? And the more you do that, the more you'll realize that actually you don't need to respond that quickly. But when you do you can make a huge impact and it can seem really valuable even because maybe you don't respond that quickly every other time. Right? They value it more.
0: Totally. Yeah. Totally. Well, yep. Josh, we're coming up on our hard limit. Uh, I want to say thanks on behalf of all of our audience for you coming on and joining us. This has been <laughs> fucking awesome.
1: <laughs> Always happy to talk to you, Max. Uh, thanks, yeah. Good luck with the rest of the podcast. Thanks so much for your time.
0: Thanks for joining us for the Accidental Engineer podcast. If you enjoyed our interview with Josh and want to hear more about professional software engineering careers, visit our website at theaccidentalengineer.com. We have a large backlog of interviews and sign up on our email list to be notified when we publish news.